Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Uh, at this time, and if you're gonna, if you're hanging out in here with us, you can open your Bible with us to Genesis chapter six. Uh, we'll be there again this week uh, through Genesis chapter seven, as we'll be reading this morning. Um, you know, the the flood story in Genesis six through nine is a pretty expansive story, and so uh, what I've decided to do as we work through it together is to pull out themes that emerge in that story, and 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 center the sermons over these next several weeks around those themes, rather than going verse by verse through that particular story. So uh, there'll be another theme this week and subsequent weeks as well as we read the text together. But we'll read once again Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 through Genesis chapter 7 verse 16. It will be on the screen this week behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you and would like to follow along there. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 begins with these words. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of the creeping things of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the, uh, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives were with him. They went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature." They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. This is God's word. Now, church, we are, uh, my family is a leftovers family. I don't know if your family is a leftovers family, but my family is a leftovers family. What I mean by that is this, is that uh, typically we may cook a large meal on one night and then eat on it for several nights subsequent to the initial dining experience, right? And so we will consume that meal for several days. Now this used to be a lot easier for us to do before we had a teenage son in the household who tends to just eat everything that is left in the pot, pan, or dish, tray, or plate, right? Uh, But we tend to eat leftovers quite frequently. In fact, early on in our marriage, if we didn't eat leftovers, then we wouldn't have had dinner some nights, right? Because we're a leftovers kind of family. Now, leftovers, essentially, we've come through a season recently with Thanksgiving and Christmas where a lot of us perhaps had a lot of leftovers of ham or of turkey or of green bean casserole, okay? All the traditional fixings that you might have for those holiday meals, right? But those leftovers are essentially what's left over after the main course, after you sit down and consume and enjoy and rejoice and feast as a family, what's left goes into the fridge to be enjoyed at a later date. Now, I use this particular illustration for a particular purpose because this morning, what I want to talk to you about is this, about leaving a legacy of faith. Leaving a legacy of faith. And whenever you think about what a legacy is, it's essentially the leftovers of your life. It's what is left behind in the wake of your life as you live it on the face of the earth before God and before others. What is left after you die is your legacy. What's left over. And our legacies essentially are what's left over from our lives when we are gone, and they are dependent upon what we do today. 
Your legacy is defined by how you live today. And the legacy or what's left over from Noah's life once he passes from the face of the earth at the ripe old age of 950 is a celebration of his faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, Noah is the third character mentioned in Hebrews eleven seven, where the author of Hebrews writes these words. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah is commended for his faith. His faith is celebrated. It is the leftovers of his life. It is what he is remembered for. And Noah teaches us something about true faith in the way that he lives. And you see it in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. And the one thing that I want us to see this morning that Noah teaches us about faith, and there will be several ways that gets pressed into our lives, several applications, but the one thing that emerges from Genesis 6 and 7 that validates what the author of Hebrews says about Noah in, Genesis, or in Hebrews eleven seven 7 is this, is that faith is seen in active obedience. Faith is seen in or through our active obedience. Now, we've got to press this here for a moment this morning because when we think about faith, we often contrast it with works, don't we? We often contrast it with works, and that's right to do. Listen, when we think about justification, when we think about being declared right in God's eyes, when we think about being made right with God, right? The Bible is very clear that no one will be justified in God's sight by what they do. No one will be declared righteous by what they do. No one will be made right with God, have their sin dealt with if they just have enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds at the end of their lives. That's not how justification works. In fact, Paul helps us with this in Romans chapter 4 when he points to Abraham as the prime example of being justified by faith. He says Abraham believed God, he had trusted God, put his confidence in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God deposits righteousness into Abraham's account, not because of all the good deeds that Abraham has done, but because he believed the promise of God, the very bare word of God. He trusted God's promise and God counted that faith, deposited righteousness into Abraham's account on account of his faith. And it's right for us to think about justifying faith in that way. However, if you turn a few pages forward in the New Testament, you get to the book of James. And James tells us that our faith Right, that our trust in the Word of God, our dependence upon the promises of God, right, is evidenced by what we do. In James chapter 2, we read, So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith, James says, by my works. 
So according to James, our works do not justify our persons before God. They don't make us right in the, with God. But our works justify our faith in God. Right? They validate, they give it the stamp of validation that indeed our faith is real, is valid, right? They don't, uh, see, so faith essentially, as we see in the book of James, that faith is not something that's passive and inactive, but rather it's something that is active in the daily realities of our lives that expresses itself by what we do. That's true faith. In fact, the very first verse in Hebrews 11 tells us what faith is, right? That it's the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But then the, every, other, every other verse in Hebrews 11 shows us what faith does. So what faith is, the evidence of things, uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, what faith does is then seen and shown through the lives of these great men and women in the hall of faith. Because true faith is taking God at his bare word when he makes a promise or he issues a command and then it builds your life on that. It builds your life on the promise, the thing that you hope for. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And it obeys the command, even if you're not sure how that's going to end for you. The evidence of things unseen. So faith essentially is dead, James says, without works to show its validity. That it's true, real, vital, living faith. If I could put it to you this way, our obedience to God, it projects our faith into the world in the same way that a projector, right, throws an image onto a screen for the viewing audience to see. Okay, I know today in the cinemas in our town, right, I sound very old when I say that, right, in the, in the movie theaters in our town, uh, the, the source material is all a digital feed that it's sending up there. But back in the day when they had old school projection rooms in movie theaters with film that turned on the wheels, right, it had those frames that were spinning at such a rate and the light was penetrating with such force that it cast an image up onto the screen. It projected onto the screen this action that was going on, right? From the source material to the screen for all the viewing audience to see. And our obedience to God, our active obedience to God is a projection of our faith for all the world to see. You have this source material, which is your faith, which is being projected, thrown onto a screen for the world to see in our obedience. And in Genesis 6 and 7, listen church, there are four places that we read about how Noah responds to God's commands. And these responses project Noah's faith. They show forth his faith for the world to see. In 6.22, we're told that after God gives Noah the command to build the ark, that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In 7.5, we're told that after God gives Noah the command to board the ark and take the animals with him, that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Once again, in 7-9, we're told that they loaded the animals onto the boat two by two, male and female, clean and unclean, animals alike, along with the birds and the creepy crawly things that were on the ground. And I quote, he did this as God had commanded Noah. Finally, just before God shuts the door in 7.16, we're told that male and female of all flesh went into the ark as God commanded him. And the him is referring to Noah. So for, on four separate occasions, this idea of God obeying the, or Noah obeying the commands of God is put front and center in Genesis 6 and 7. And the words all and as describe Noah's obedience. He did everything that God had commanded him in the manner that God had prescribed. He did all the commands as God had commanded him. So the characterization of Noah in chapter 6 and 7 is one who took God at his bare word, was a careful to obey all of God's commands. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews 11 highlights when he highlights Noah's faith. Right? By faith, Noah, having been warned in advance of God's judgment, built a boat. And in so doing, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How did he become an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith? Because he believed the word of God. He trusted what God had said. Now these few words scattered through Genesis 6 and 7, they underscore that Noah lived by faith. But listen, what they leave out is the tremendous effort and investment that must have been involved in his faith. It must have taken Noah years to build a boat of that size and scope. To cut down, imagine the multitude of trees he had to harvest in order to make that boat. To carry them, transport them to the building site where he was constructing the boat. To fit and join these huge planks together in such a way to build a boat that was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Significant amount of time and labor that went into this. In addition, he must have spent a fortune to build this boat. Of such exceptional size, and then to take and store on it a sufficient and varied food supply for all, himself and all the animals, his family, and then all the two by two male and female creepy crawly things on the ground. Right? Everything. It took time, it took energy, it took investment. And so Noah is commended for his faith in Hebrews 11 because his faith was real and it was put on display through active obedience. Now let me ask you a question, church. And I'm looking in the mirror when I ask this question. I'm asking it to myself as well. When the projector of your life is turned on, what will be thrown and shown on the screen? The answer to that question depends on the source material it's projecting. See, what's shown on the screen is the truth regardless of what claims we might make. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. If I claim to be a math prodigy, mm, it's getting deep in here right now. If I claim to be a math prodigy, but I can't handle the combination of numbers and letters in equations, which I cannot, by the way, all right? It took me two semesters to get through college algebra, 
All right? And so if I claim to be a math prodigy, but I can't do simple, basic, algebraic equations, then there is strong evidence that no matter what I claim, I am not a math prodigy regardless of what I think of myself. Right? If you say that you're a professional baseball player, right, but you can't hit a fastball over 70 miles an hour, all right, then there is strong evidence, no matter what you claim to be, that you are not a professional baseball player. Because hands down, right, the fastballs in the major leagues are at 95 plus. Almost every arm can throw that these days. So if you can't hit over 70, you got no shot. You're not a professional baseball player, no matter what you claim to be. See, if, if, you, if we claim to have faith but have no works, our faith is dead. The claim is invalid. I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. So if we say that we are, but there is no evidence that we are, then we are not. Listen, there's no way that our legacy... The leftovers of our lives will be marked by faith unless our lives are marked by obedience. They're marked by faithfulness. You can say that you believe. You can say that you trust and cling to God all you want. But listen, the proof is in the projection. Can anyone else see active obedience in your life? Now this is not the type of self-righteousness the self-righteous obedience that puts on display its righteousness for other men to see so that we can receive our rewards and our attaboys and pats on the back. Jesus warns us against that kind of self-righteousness. However, would anyone look at our lives and mistake us for a Christian? A person who possesses real, vital, living faith based on the patterns of what we're projecting into the world. A better question may be this. Does God see active obedience in your life? No matter what anyone else can see, church, God is able to see everything. Including the source material that you're projecting. Does God see active obedience in your life? Because true faith is shown through active obedience. So if faith is seen this way, how do we then put faith into action? Let me give you four ways this morning. First, you've got to first and foremost This is foundational. Listen, you have to look to the one to whom Noah points. That's the starting place. See, from the beginning of Genesis 6 through the middle of Genesis 9, Noah is shown as the paragon of righteousness, the pinnacle of righteousness in his generation, the ideal righteous person. There's no one like him in his generation. He does all that God's commands as God had commanded him. And he shines brightly in this twisted, distorted, violent world in which he lives. However, by the time you get to the end of Genesis 9, you're going to find Noah passed out in a drunken stupor and awakes to find himself naked, having been uncovered by one of his sons. We'll get there in a few weeks. 
But even Noah, who is commended for his faith and his obedience to God, is un- who is unique in his generation, he can't hold his wine and keep his pants on at the end of Genesis 9. So Noah is not perfect. He's not perfect. And yet Noah points to one who is. See, I find it significant that God gave so crucial a task Right? The deliverance of mankind from the flood of God's judgment so that a new humanity could be forged from him and established on the earth. He gave that task not to an angel and not to a whole society. He gave it to a man. He gave it to one man. He gave it to a righteous man. Which foreshadows what I believe the Bible would say is a greater deliverance to come through the obedience of one man. See, in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writes, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See, the one to whom Noah points is Jesus himself. See, Noah's righteousness foreshadows the very righteousness of Christ, except that Jesus' righteousness would shine like the sun without ever being subject to any eclipse. In other words, there would never be a time in which the moon would pass in front and darken the righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness would shine brightly 24-7, 365. See, he's the only one who does all that God commands and obeys God perfectly. Jesus' righteousness is spotless, it is without blemish, and it is absolute. So the starting line for putting our faith into practice is putting our faith in the one who is righteous. And that is not ourselves, church. Seeing the righteousness of God projected in the life of Jesus. See, if you aren't clinging to the righteousness of Jesus who, was, who lived in your place, then listen, you'll be on a lifelong quest to construct your own righteousness and to impress God with it. And this is always self-righteousness, which is abominable in God's eyes. However, if you see that true righteousness only takes root and begins to grow in your life, when you come to the end of yourself and you place your confidence in the righteousness of Jesus, then and only then is your righteousness not an attempt to impress God, but a response to the acceptance of God as He has dispensed His grace to you. So you're not trying to earn anything from God, but you're still putting forth effort to serve, love, and obey God. So the starting place for putting your faith into action and leaving the kind of legacy in your wake of faith is to put your faith in Christ because he is the one to whom Noah points. Second thing is this. Church, we have to obey what we know. Obey what we know. See, Noah had clear instructions from God regarding the dimensions of the ark. The animals that were to be gathered when it was time for he and his family to board. There was information that Noah had that he acted on. He obeyed. He put it into practice. But there was also information Noah didn't have. He didn't know how long the flood was going to be. He knew how long it was supposed to rain, right? But he didn't know how long the flood was going to last. He just knew it was going to be a long time. 
because he had to gather up a bunch of food to be supplies for them as they were on the boat. He didn't know what would happen after the flood. However, what Noah didn't know didn't stop him from doing what he did know. He obeys the clear command that he had from God. Build the boat. Collect the animals. Board the boat. He did what he knew. Thomas Boston, Puritan pastor, once said these words. He says, whatever you learn from the word, labor to put it in practice. He says, for to him that has shall be given. No wonder they get little insight into the Bible who make no conscious effort of practicing what they know. And then he says, but when the stream runs into a holy life, an obedient life, one that's doing what it knows, he says, the fountain will be all the more free. The the fountain just overflows whenever it's running into a life that it's expressing itself in fruitfulness and obedience by doing what you know. Let me ask you a question this morning, students. Are you doing what you know? There, you, listen, there are certain things that you know that the Bible teaches that God has commanded. Are you putting those things into practice and walking by faith and trusting that what God has said is better than perhaps what you desire or feel in that moment? I can give you a really quick, clear one, right? The Bible says, Paul teaches in the Old Testament, uh, in the commandments, and then the New Testament, Paul repeats it in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? For this is right. And all the moms and dads said, amen and amen, right? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Are you doing what you know, right? Even, even when you go, I'm not, why do they always ask me to do this whenever I'm doing something else that I want to do? Right? Obey your parents. Are you doing what you know? Right? Whenever they are trying to instruct and disciple and teach and love and nurture and raise an adult, right? Rather than a child who's going to live as an infant in dependence for the rest of their life, but rather one who can live independent of them for the rest of their lives? Are you doing what you know, obeying as they counsel, coach, and teach? Parents, are you doing what you know? Because on the heels of that, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Are you doing what you know? It's easy. Listen, I can confess before you this morning, there have been times in my own parenting in which I've exasperated my children because I'm not doing what I know. I'm not being as gentle in my direction as I ought to be or my responses as I should be. Right? Are there times in which you're trying to give direction, but rather than giving direction, you're dictating through a loud voice like a megaphone in the home, doing nothing but yelling? Are you doing what you know, not exasperating your children? Husbands, are you doing what you know? Are you selflessly serving, sacrificing for, and laying down your life for your wives in your home?
Wives, are you doing what you know? Are you affirming your husband's leadership in the home and nurturing that and calling it forth for more of that from him? Are you doing what you know? Are you giving time and energy and resources to kingdom agendas and purposes? Are you doing what you know? And listen, am I, I'm looking in the mirror. Am I doing what I know? Now someone might say, listen, but it doesn't, because the, listen, the greatest sin in this emerging generation is inauthenticity. Okay, not being true to what you feel. That's the great, I'm not saying that's a sin in the Bible. I'm saying in this culture, right? It's not being true to what you feel. So someone might say, well, it doesn't feel authentic to do something that I don't feel like doing. So I'm going to wait until I feel like doing it before I do it. And if I don't ever feel like doing it, then I won't do it, right? So I'm going to wait to pursue purity until I feel like being pure. Or I'm going to wait to serve my spouse until I feel like they're deserving of it. Or I'm going to, you feel, fill in the blank, right? Whatever it is that you don't feel like doing, that you say, I'm going to wait for the feelings to come before I do it. However, that logic doesn't hold true in most any other area of our lives. Listen, I've, I've encouraged a number of people over the years to take up distance running. And I've done it with them. Right? And so as we've run together at times, right, there have been times in which I've gotten injured or they've gotten injured. And so we have to take maybe a week or a month off and heal up so we can continue training. And I will often ask them whenever they've become injured, right, did you ever imagine yourself a year ago missing running 15 miles on a Saturday morning and inevitably to a person their response is I know I never imagined myself to be a, the kind of person who would miss running 15 miles on a Saturday morning some of you right now are thinking I would never be the kind of person who would miss running 15 miles on a Saturday morning but but be, before they felt like it Right? They began to put one foot in front of the other. And they began to do it. And you know what happened over the course of time? Their feelings changed as their actions changed. Their feelings caught up to their actions to now where whenever they have to miss it, they miss it. John Bradford said it this way. He said, give yourself to obedience, although you do it not with such feeling as you desire. Faith must go before, then feeling will follow. This pattern is true in all kinds of disciplines, church, prayer, Bible reading, serving others, fasting, giving ourselves away to and for God's purposes. Obey what you know. Third, pray for greater faithfulness. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, we're told that Noah walked with God. That word walked is the Hebrew word halak. And in the Old Testament, it's a term that often describes the way that someone goes about their rhythms or patterns of life. It's the way that they live. They walk in the ways of God or they walked in the ways of the gods of the other nations. But when this verb, halak, shows up in the stem that it's found here in verse 9, alongside the word with, 
It's not necessarily describing the patterns of behavior in someone's life. What it's describing is referring to being an associate of someone, being familiar with them, knowing them at a deeper than surface level capacity. In fact, one way it's used in the Old Testament is to be conversant with someone, to talk with someone. And so from this, I conclude that when we are told that Noah walked with God, the author means that Noah was an associate of God. He was familiar with God. He knew God deeply because he was conversant with God. To put it simply, Noah walked and talked with God. Now you might ask, what did Noah talk with God about? Right? What did Noah pray for? I don't know. <laughs> But I don't think it's too far of a stretch to see that based on what's projected in Noah's life up to this point in Genesis 7, the faithfulness to God's commands in response to God's grace or the favor that God bestows upon him in Genesis 6-9, that Noah was praying for faithfulness to the command that God had given him. Now this is crucial, church, if we want the leftovers of our lives to be marked by faith Because in the same way that true faith is not passive, it is active. True faith also is not static, but it's dynamic. So it ebbs and flows in our lives. William Gurnall once said, When obedience falters, faith weakens. How can there be great faith when there is little faithfulness? See, there's a direct correlation between our faith and our faithfulness. If you think of it this way, we might say that you can't have one without the other. See, true obedience is born of faith. And when we choose to obey our faith, it's like that muscle is strengthened. And we believe God for even greater things. But whenever we disobey, our faith is weakened. If you think of it this way, it's it's like a home. It's like a home that is constructed. And then over the years, because I'm sure around your house, just like around mine, there's probably some deferred maintenance. right? Things that you just haven't gotten around to just yet. right? And sometimes in some homes, some of those things that you hadn't gotten around to just yet might be a crack in the mortar of the brick or of the stone, right? Or the caulk beginning to pull away from the seams around the siding. And what happens is with that deferred maintenance over time, because you don't address it, what happens is water can begin to seep into that. And as water begins to seep into that, year after year after year after year, what happens is that water can make its way into the framing of the home and begin to cause much bigger issues than the crack in the mortar. You with me? And that's what happens whenever we neglect obedience in our lives or we choose actively to disobey God, right? We expose ourselves to, like, our faith to deterioration. And it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, Rather than exercising that muscle so that it can become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. So pray for greater faithfulness. Pray for God's will to be done in your life. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And I love the way the late R.C. Sproul spoke about this phrase. He said, this phrase is not asking that God's determinate counsel. In other words, what God has determined to take place from eternity past. We're not asking for that to come to pass. Or that God should usher in those things which he has foreordained from eternity. Rather, we are praying for obedience to the revealed preceptive will of God. In other words, what he's commanded. What he has made plain to us by the way of his commandments. This third petition in the prayer is a prayer for obedience on the part of God's people. That those who are the people of God will obey the mandates and commands of God. When you pray... Are you only asking God with petitions, right, to meet your financial needs, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about that. You should. When you pray, are you only asking God, are you only issuing petitions to God that He would resolve relational drama and conflict in your life, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about those things. You should. But when you pray, are you petitioning God that there would be a growing obedience to His Word in your life, that you would be more faithful today than you were yesterday, and that you'd be more faithful tomorrow than you are today? Are you asking God to make that true in your life? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, make that true in me. Praying for greater faithfulness. And then fourth and finally, entrust the outcomes to God. See, Noah's just one of the heroes of faith listed in Hebrews 11. In fact, the two that come before him I think are as instructive as well. I find it interesting that the first to be commended for his faith is Abel in Hebrews chapter 11. He's commended for his offering his sacrifice in faith before the Lord. Abel's commended for his faith and yet he dies. He is slain by his brother out of jealousy. The second to be commended for his faith is Enoch who walked with the Lord in Genesis chapter 5, and then he was not for the Lord took him. So Abel is commended for his faith, and he dies. Enoch is commended for his faith, and he doesn't die, but he's taken. Noah is the third, and he is commended for his faith, and everyone else dies, right, in the flood of God's judgment. Each of these men is commended for their faith, which teaches us that as one commentator said, we cannot dictate where faith will lead. We cannot control the outcomes. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded, which led the author of Hebrews to say that in so doing, he condemned the world. What's interesting to note is that the author, when Noah does this, who builds the boat, he is simultaneously condemning the world and saving this remnant for God's purpose to rebuild. But the outcome was not something Noah could control. He obeyed and he entrusted the outcome to God. And listen, the same is true for you and I. Whenever we take a step of obedience in faith, we don't know what the end result's going to be. We don't know what the end result's going to be in our lives. We don't know what the end result's going to be in our generation. We don't know what the end result's going to be in the next generation. The American mind is often too nearsighted to have the, the, mm, the vision to see that your step of faith today may never fully 
bear realized fruit in your life, but it may bear realized fruit in the life of your grandkids. Could we be so far-sighted as to see that? If we would be far-sighted to see that, then we've got to give up control. And that's hard. That's hard for me. Listen, as one, one teaching a teenager to drive right now, it's a hard thing to give up control, right? There have been multiple times in which I've wanted to break on that passenger side. Like my, my driver's ed teacher had whenever I was learning to drive. A few times he used it on me. I remember those moments very clearly, right? Whenever I was going a little too fast and he said, slow down. And I didn't slow down fast enough for him. So he hits that brake on the other side of that car. And it comes, it jarred me. And he said, next time, slow down. (laughs) Right? But as one who's teaching a teenager to drive, I've had to give up control. I'm sitting there in the passenger seat and someone else is behind the wheel. That now as I've, I've, given direction and coaching, but I've been trusting the outcomes to the decision-making process going on in his mind and his activity. I know some of you have been there and some of you are not there yet, right? So some of you can commiserate with me and some of you are like, what's the big deal? Just wait. But listen, that's an issue for all of us because we don't want to give up control. We don't want the wheel to be in someone else's hands. We don't want someone else to have the brake or the gas Because we all have a little bit of narcissism within us. And at the very heart of narcissism is a desire and quest for control. We don't like to live life within limits, church. But if you survey survey the rest of Hebrews 11, you'll see that these great men and women who were commended for their faith, they had no idea what the outcomes would be. Abraham, or Abram, when he's called from the land of his parents to go to a land that God would show him what does he do he pulls up stakes and he leaves trusting the bare word of God and he goes and what happens as a result is that God makes a great nation out of him what God promised to do he does but Abraham only saw it through the eyes of faith When he offers up Isaac in faith, he believed that God would provide a substitute. And you know what? God did. By faith, Noah brings his son to the top of the hill and raises the knife. And God says, whoa! And there's a ram caught in the thicket. But when Abram took the step, the first step up the mountain with the wood and the knife, he didn't know how God would provide. But he trusted that he would. By faith, Sarah believed, even in her old age, that God was, had promised to give her a child and that he was powerful to open her womb. But she hadn't seen it yet. And he does. By faith, Noah, or not Noah, but Joseph, at the end of his life, before he died, back to the land of promise that God promised to Abraham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't leave my bones here in Egypt, but you better take me to the promised land with you. By faith, but Joseph never saw it. Moses, though reluctant at first, goes back into Egypt to confront Pharaoh because God had commanded him to do so and he promised to be with him and he was and yet Moses when he crosses into Egyptian territory 
wants to go back to this place and to these people that he had fled from. He didn't know the end of the story. But by faith, he went because God commanded. And he trusted the outcome to God. Are you willing to give up control, church? It's the only way to leave a legacy of faith. Faith is indeed active obedience. So obey what you know. Pray for faithfulness and entrust the results to God. Listen, what will the leftovers of your life be? When your kids sit around at your wake, when your kids sit around at the meal that hopefully, Lord willing, whatever church they attend, after your service of remembrance or your funeral, what stories will they tell? Will they tell the stories of the road trips and the goofy songs? I hope they do. But will they also tell the stories of men and women, of their mom and of their dad, who had leftovers of faith, all these morsels that they're able to then chew on for the rest of their lives to encourage them on their journey. Is that what you will leave behind? I pray that it would be. Let's pray for that this morning as we close. Father, I pray in my own life for greater faithfulness to your word. Father, I acknowledge that there are aspects of my life in which I have not walked in faith. I've tried to control the outcomes. And I would imagine I'm not the only one in the room who would acknowledge that this morning. So Father, help us to take our hands off of the wheel and to entrust the outcome of our lives to you as we trust your bare word of promise or your bare word of command. Father, may we be a people of prayer who pray for faithfulness day in and day out. May we, may we nag you about being faithful in our lives. Father, we shall see in, in next week about your f- faithfulness to us and rejoice in that. But Father, may we be faithful to you and pray for even greater degrees of faithfulness and obedience in our lives. So that what we project into the world would leave a legacy of great faith that would inspire, that would stir up faith in future generations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, 
passage and page of the Bible.